What country has more centenarians than any other? People living to be 100 or more. Correct. And to exhaust $100 billion, how much would you have to spend every day for 100 years? Notice the theme here, 100? <laughs> this is our 100th podcast Hit together. Hit the horns, Bob. <laughs> yep, it's Party Central. It's Party here Central at here at The, the Off Ramp. Ramp. With Bob. And Marsha? Smith. Wait a minute. We did That's that all wrong. Right. Oh, no, we're okay. good. Okay. All right. Well, all right. Hit the music. Welcome to the off-ramp, a chance to slow down, steer clear of crazy, take a side road to sanity, and toot your horn. Toot your horn. Yes, yes, uh, yes. All right. Enough of that for a while. That, that's fun, though, isn't it? It is. Yeah. So uh, it was two years ago this month that we started our podcast during COVID, during the lockdown. It, during the lockdown Thinking, in the beginning. well, this would be fun to do something, you know, that's creative and positive for the Cedarbrook Public Library. Correct. It's grown a lot. So toot the horn again. <laughs> okay. All right. So on that theme of 100, we have a number of questions today. I just have one. What country has more centenarians than any other? And centenarians are? People who live to be 100 and over. Okay. Seems to me that the centenarians were either in countries like China or they were in a lot of the Nordic countries, uh -huh. people like Scandinavian uh -huh. countries for some reason. That's correct. I'm going to say Denmark or, or, or Norway or something like that. Yes. Well, absolutely not. Oh. I, <laughs> I would have said Japan myself, mm. but that's number two. The number one is the USA. Oh, really? Yeah. 97,000 of them, 100 and older. It's the highest absolute number in the world. Japan has 79,000. And the United Nations reports that life expectancies in developed and developing countries is increasing and will rise this year to 573,000 people. Wow. So over a half a million people this year are going to be 100 and over. But in the United States, 97,000. So there are almost 100,000 100-year-old people. Oh, brilliant, Bob. <laughs> 100, the perfect number. Yes. There are 100 years in a century. Mm -hmm. On the Celsius scale, 100 degrees is the boiling temperature of water. Uh-huh. Uh, how many people are in the U.S. Senate? Hundred. A hundred senators. There are one hundred yards in an American football field. Correct. One hundred is the perfect square number and its square root is ten. Uh-huh. And one hundred is the basic of percentages. So one hundred is a very big number in our culture. So to exhaust one hundred billion dollars. One hundred billion. Just yeah. pretend you're Mr. Buffett or Mr. Bezos or Mr. Okay. Musk. Uh -huh. Let's say you have $100 billion, Marsha. Show off. Okay. <laughs> How much would you have to spend every day for 100 years to get rid of it? A million a day? No, three times that amount. Three million a day? You'd have to spend $3 million every day for 100 years to exhaust $100 billion. I think I'd run out of ideas. Isn't that you know? amazing? You know, once I get the shoes I wanted, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, I have a couple of other 100 notes. We'll get to those in a moment. Okay. Speaking of old, King Tut died around 3,300 years ago. 
And when his tomb was uncovered, they found 25 plant food species, including sesame seeds, millet, barley, black cumin seeds, coriander, and watermelon seeds. Huh. And therein lies my question. Okay. The wild watermelon seeds, when planted, tasted awful. So what do scientists and researchers think was the main purpose for ancient Egyptians for watermelons? It wasn't to eat them? They tasted terrible. They tasted terrible. So medicinal use? I guess you could say that. It wasn't a medicine per okay, se. Okay, I don't but know. But you're, you're on the right I don't track. know where you're going with this. So yeah, go well, ahead. that was the idea <laughs> to trick you. Okay, they used it, they theorized, for hydration. Each bite of watermelon contains 92% water mm -hmm. and 6% sugar. So the ancients who didn't carry convenient recyclable water bottles probably carried watermelon slices with them to rehydrate. Huh. I just I'd, don't think of watermelons coming from that area of the world. No, no, you don't. And that's why it was so weird that they found that in Tut's tomb. King Tut. <laughs> okay, I've got a couple other 100 questions. We know the term Google because we use the Google search engine, but Google is actually named after a numerical factor, the Google, G-O-O-G-O-L. What does that represent? Oh, uh, is it? <sighs> it's the number one followed by? How many zeros? What do you think? It's a lot. Think it's, of today's it, theme. Yeah, it's, it's 100. It's 100. Yeah. There we go. Very good, Marsha. <laughs> Thank yes. you. Thank you. Now, a Google is the number one followed by 100 zeros. All right, what significance does 100 have to sweat glands? Sweat you, glands. We have 100 of them. Where? In our armpits. <laughs> well, maybe. There are 100 sweat glands in one square inch of skin. Really? 100. All over your body? Yeah, right, in each square inch of skin. Okay. And what significance does 100 have to Scrabble? Uh, geez, Louise. I don't know. You need 10 Zs to get 100? There are 100 letter tiles. Oh, okay. In Didn't a game know of that. scramble. Yeah. And one last question about 100. Yes. What significance does 100 have in basketball? Um, uh, no idea. 100 points. That's the most ever scored by a National Basketball Association right? player in a single game. One player. One player. And who was that? I'll say Wilt Chamberlain. Wilt Chamberlain, you're right, All of the right. Philadelphia Warriors. He did it the night of March 2nd, 1962, and that record has never been wow, broken. since 62. Since 62, so 60 years. Yeah, Wilt Chamberlain set that record 100 points in a single game by a single player. So okay. those are just some things about the number 100 I thought those was interesting. Very... I have one more question, oh, sure. Let but me we'll have get it. to that in a minute. Okay. What do you think was the inspiration for the ever-so-popular video game, The Legend of Zelda. Oh, you know, I always wondered about The Legend of Zelda. Uh-huh, you'll like the answer. Zelda's little face and uh, Zelda's, now Zelda's kind of like a warrior, right? Uh, like a Viking warrior or something yeah. like that? Yeah, yeah. Okay, tell me, what's the inspiration? <laughs> well, you didn't see this coming. Uh, it was named after F. Scott Fitzgerald's wife. Oh, no kidding. Yes. Zelda Fitzgerald was a writer, artist, and jazz age icon whose marriage to the great Gatsby author F. Scott Fitzgerald generated a fair amount of headlines all by itself. Yeah, they, were, yeah. they were always in the news. Zelda, who's been described as the first flapper of the Roaring Twenties, 
was chosen because a Nintendo rep suggested the princess should be a timeless beauty with classic appeal. I never would have thought of that. No, me either. That's Something why. from 100 years ago, the Roaring Twenties, yeah. led to the Zelda that we know today in the video games. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. she was pretty famous in her own right. Marcia, today we have bike paths all over the world where they didn't used to be. A lot of times they're on railroad tracks, you know, old railroad tracks uh-huh. and so forth. But where was the first bike path in the United States? What city had the first bike paths? New York City, Boston, Seattle, or Denver? Uh, New York City. That's right. It was the Brooklyn Borough of New York City. Brooklyn's Ocean Parkway became home to the country's first dedicated bike path when it opened June 15, 1894. And that was during the bicycle craze, you know, the Uh late 19th century. And on opening day, 10,000 cyclists swarmed the path with a speed limit set to 12 miles per hour. And the architects of Central Park, Calvert Vaux and Frederick Law Olmsted, were the masterminds behind the five-mile bike path. No, is that when they had the... Uh, big wheel in the front and the little wheel in the back? I think by that time they were pretty much the same, but maybe not. I don't know. Okay. Boy. Anyway, the bikeway and the path now extend to Coney Island Beach. So here's a question I like. Has hmm. anybody ever beaten a computer in the game of chess? Yes, I think so. Who and when? I don't know who it was. I think it was in the 60s, wasn't it? That's my boy. chess chess match? It was 26 years ago in 1996, actually, not the 60s. Okay. But it was, you'll remember this name, Gary Kasparov. Oh, Gary Kasparov, the famous uh, Russian. Russian. Yes. And he defeated IBM's Deep Blue Computer in a game match, and he won it 4-2 in 1996. But one year later... Big Blue kind of upped its game, and no one's ever beat a computer since. The IBM computer they came up with was upgraded and could examine 200 million different chess positions per second. Oh, dear Lord. And this amazes me. Big Blue won four to two, which means Gary still won two out of the six. Yeah, that's good. Right, <laughs> and that's a reverse of before it was four to two he won, so. Still very impressive. Uh, you bet it is. Okay, speaking of computers, how far back does computer-based dating go? When Com- was the first <laughs> oh, online dating, dating app? Not online, but computer dating. When oh. people would put information into a computer and find matches. So this is before the internet. Oh, oh, okay. All right. Well, then I'll say... This is a project called Happy Families Planning Services. <laughs> it sounds Japanese, doesn't it? <laughs> it does, but Happy it's not. Happy Family. Okay, it's not a Chinese dinner or anything. Okay, um, I'll say 1987. Actually, it goes back about 30 years before that. 19, really? 1959. The first computer-based Holy. dating. That's when Stanford University students Jim Harvey and Phil Filer conducted a class project for Happy Families Planning Services, and they had a 30-question punch card questionnaire, and an IBM 650 determined similarities between 98 subjects. 56, huh? 59, 59. There was little romance in the punch card for participants, <laughs> but the students received an A if they participated. Really? Yeah, anybody who participates in this computer-based project gets an A. Very interesting. <laughs> okay, Bob. All right, when was the first commercial computer-based matchmaking service? Okay. Again, before the internet, but they had a commercial service. Really? Yeah. Oh, all right. When was that last one? 56? 59. 50. Okay, I'll say 64. 65, Yeah. 
Harvard students Jeff Tarr and Vaughn Morrill used a questionnaire and an IBM 1401 to match students based on similarities. It was called Operation Match. Now, the co-founder Jeff Tarr said, we're not trying to take the love out of love. We're just trying to make it more efficient. (laughs) (laughs) And it continues to this day. Yeah, there was a singles uh, mailed in a 75-question survey. And by 1966, they claimed to have 90,000 people using their services. And it was only $3. That was the fee back then. That's pretty cool. And out of all the couples I know, I bet 90% of them have met online. Really? Yeah. Younger couples. Yeah. It's amazing how common it is. One more question on (laughs) 100. All right. All right. Because again, this is our 100th. Let's hit the horn. (laughs) There we go. We got our 100th show today. We're just so happy we made it this far. You know, it is interesting because remember when we were in marketing communications, all clients wanted to start a newsletter and you'd go, oh God, (laughs) because you know that they never persevered and made it to like newsletter 100. Oh, they lucky if you made it past two. Same with podcasts, but okay. here we've done 100 half-hour right. shows. So congratulations to you, Marcia, for sticking Thank you, with Robert. Us. Thank <laughs> you for sticking with me. All right. What's the origin of the word hundred? There's an origin of hundred. Not 100, just hundred. Hundred. It's a very, hundred. very old word. Is it a Greek word? No, it's Anglo-Saxon. Okay, so tell me. This, the interesting thing about the word hundred is it's two words together. Hund, H-U-N-D, red, R-E-D. Hund means the numerals one, zero, zero. That dates back to 893. Okay. So if hund means the numbers one, zero, zero, what does the second half of the word red mean? I don't know. Red comes from an old Germanic root meaning reckoning, accounting, or number. So the two words together, hund, red, literally means a count of one, zero, zero, or a count of 100. Fascinating. Well, (laughs) so hunt and red as a compound word came in the 10th century. So that's how far it goes. And that spelling, H-U-N-D-R-E-D, has remained unchanged for over a 1,000 years. Okay, hit the horns. All right. That's the story of 100. And now (laughs) you're listening to The Off-Ramp with Bob. And Marsha. Smith, we'll be back in just a moment. Okay, we're back. Okay, Bob, how many years does it take for light from the center of the Milky Way to reach Earth? All right, so we're in the Milky Way. We're in the Milky Way galaxy, Uh our solar system. It's huge, apparently. (laughs) Very huge. So does it take more than one light year to reach us? Or 100 light years? 100? Does it? In our theme? No. No, it's not. Okay. It takes nearly 25,000 years to reach our planet. Wow. Can you believe that? That means the light we see from the center of the Milky Way dates back to when we humans were still in the Stone Age. That's just fascinating. Almost as fascinating as my 100-year questions. <laughs> oh, now you're just being me. <laughs> it, well, is, uh, it is amazing the size and the scope of this. And then you realize all these science fantasy films where yeah. we're going to another galaxy. Well, that would take 22,000 years and when at you the lo- speed of light. Yeah. When you look at celestial bodies, we're actually looking back in time. The sun we see is about 8.3 minutes old when the light hits us. Yeah, yeah. And uh, the North Star... When we see the light from the North Star, Polaris, it's 320 years old. That's why they always say that these big telescopes that they put up in the sky, that yeah. they, you know, like the Hubble and uh, the new one is the Webb, 
Uh-huh. Basically, they are looking back in time. Everything yeah. you see is like a time machine. Yeah, but I can't believe when you look up at uh, the North Star Polaris that it's 320 years old light we're seeing. Yeah, so is it still there is the question. 320, oh, yeah, that's what you're good, seeing is yeah. 320 years old. So. That's right. All right, Marcia, about two years ago, as we said, we started this podcast. That was a time when everything was shutting down. How far have we come in terms of recovery? What's the percentage of office workers in Manhattan that are back in the office five days a week? Wow, what percentage? I'll say 57 57%. Yeah. 57% of the office workers in New York City Uh are back to work. No, believe it or not, it's only 8%. Oh, my God. Yeah, this is just in. (laughs) This is a recent survey. The long-awaited return to the office is not going quite as planned for many companies. 8%. In Manhattan, just 8% of office workers are back five days a week. 28% are still fully remote, and then the rest are partially remote. Now, the real estate industry has the highest daily attendance, 82%. They're getting those people in. <laughs> yeah. we got to sell yeah. these properties, sell right? Stuff, yeah. While financial services firms, they have the lowest, 40% of the major industries. Who's that? Financial services. Oh, okay. One more part of this survey. The last part is 64% of workers surveyed just now by payroll provider ADP would consider looking for a new job if they were required to work in the office full time. Yeah. would rather accept a pay cut if it meant more flexibility or a hybrid approach. So the recovery back to the office still hasn't come about. Okay, Bob, what is the Hal David Starlight Award? Hal David. Burt Backrack and Hal David? Yeah, that's the one. So Burt Backrack, I think, wrote the music, and Hal must have been the lyricist? Correct. Okay, so then it must be an award for songwriting. Good deduction, Bob. All right. The Songwriters Hall of Fame. This prestigious award, the Starlight Award, was established to honor gifted songwriters who are at an apex in their careers and are making a significant impact in the music industry via their original songs. Recent winners have been... uh, Halsey, John Legend, Taylor Swift, Sarah Bareilles, Ed Sheehan. That's the highest award you can get from the Songwriters Hall of Fame. Speaking of names, Marsha. Yes. The city of Corpus Christi, Texas. What is it named for? A, the body of Christ. B, an explorer's ship. C, a saint. Or D, a Catholic feast day. Or one or more of those. Or a hot dog festival. Yeah, yeah. I'll the say, Corpus Christi hot dog festival. <laughs> I'll say the first one. The body of Christ. Yeah. It's actually the body of Christ and a Catholic feast day. Okay. In the early 16th century, yeah. there was a Spanish explorer, Alonso Alvarez de Pineda, who is responsible for naming it. And the reasoning is simple. He arrived there on the Catholic feast day of the same name. Okay. So that's where it comes from. All right, Bob. Here's one for little Bob. Little Bobby, what famous TV cowboy had a horse named Razor? Razor? Yeah. Well, that wasn't Roy Rogers because no. his was uh, Trigger. Trigger, and it wasn't... Uh, Razor, so somebody who had a knife. This, you watched this cowboy. I did. Yes, you did. Not Gene Autry. Nope. Not Hopalong Cassidy. Nope. I watched this cowboy. Is it John Wayne? Nope. TV cowboy. Yeah. I'm thinking of... Uh, Pancho and Cisco. <laughs> yeah, no. Okay, who is it? This guy carried a rifle, not a gun. Okay, who is it? Lucas McCain, the rifleman. 
I didn't know that his horse was named Razor. And that's why I asked you. Uh, of course. <laughs> of course. Of course, that's why you had to ask. Here's one that I'll be curious. I'll bet you know this one. Okay. Mick Jagger, Keith Richard, William Wyman, Charlie Watts, and who else comprised the original Rolling Stones? Brian something. Very good. He died in a swimming pool. What was his name? You got the first part. Jones, Brian Jones. Yes, Brian Jones. The original Rolling Stones. Yes, yes, yes. Okay. All right, I have a question for you. This goes back to the 1930s, okay? And this is something somebody should try again, because I'm sure there's a need for it. How did American Airlines, a president for American Airlines in the 1930s, encourage his company's managers to take customer luggage mix-ups more seriously? (laughs) How? (laughs) I, I don't know. It's a novel trick. I love when people do things like this. Uh-huh. Lamont Kohu, who was the president of American Airlines, he'd been plagued with complaints of lost luggage. So he summoned his station managers from throughout the country to a meeting. He arranged oh. to have their baggage lost <laughs> in transit. Them. Yeah, that's great. And it worked. Oh, that's lovely. Years later, he told the New York Times, we had a lot more efficiency after that. Yeah, that's brilliant. You need to make problems relatable. Uh, if it happens to you... It's personal. Yes. Okay, Bob. What kind of people have more zinc and copper in their hair? People who live in coal mines. <laughs> who live in mines. Well, what is it? Intelligence. Oh. People with more zinc and copper in their hair. Have you smelled my hair lately? No. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. All right. I'm going to ask you a heavy question. Which is heavier, hot water or cold water? Hmm. Hot water or cold water? For some reason, I would think cold water would be heavier than hot water. It's because you can turn it into ice and all that. I don't know. No. Is it true? No. Well, what's what's it's, the answer? Hot water is heavier. That's because there's more space between molecules in hot water. So it's less dense than an equal amount of cold water. Wow. Okay. So it's the, it's the concentration of yeah, the molecules. That's correct. Okay. All right. We did a couple of president questions a week or so ago, and I got a couple more here for you, okay? Uh-huh. Okay. What birth distinction do 15 U.S. presidents have in common, including uh, Joe Biden? Uh, the, their birth order? Yes. Okay. Then they were first. They were first born. Okay. Yeah. 15 U.S. presidents were first born. Seven presidents were the youngest in their families. And 23 were in the middle of their families. I thought that was interesting. What president fathered the most children? I'll say. One of his grandsons just died. Oh, yeah. That was amazing. It was uh, Roosevelt. No. Teddy, no? No. John Tyler. He's the 10th president. He fathered the most children, 15. And they were spaced so far apart that grandchildren were still living in the 2010s and 20s. It's amazing, isn't it? Yeah. Okay. Okay. All right, Bob McSmarty Pants, here's a little (laughs) geography question. Uh, In addition to Florida, Bob, name five states with panhandles. Oh, five states with panhandles. That's a good one. Yeah. All right, so you got the Florida panhandle, you got the Oklahoma panhandle. And then I'm like, (laughs) well, where are the other panhandles? Wait a minute. It's, uh, is, is, does Idaho have a panhandle? It's got kind of a long, okay, thin. Uh uh. Um, all right, I let me see. Let me think. No, that's not working today. <laughs> not, tell me the parts of the country where they are. That makes well, this interesting. Uh, one is in the Midwest. One is in the Midwest. That would be... Wow, what in the Midwest has a panhandle? I can't think of one. 
Well, okay. maybe I live there. Michigan? Yes. Michigan is a panhandle? Yes. Th- upper Peninsula. I never called it a panhandle either. So the Upper Peninsula is yeah. considered a panhandle of Michigan. Indeed it is. And it doesn't connect to the lower part. How can it be a panhandle? I mean, they're separated by five miles of water there. This is wrong. <laughs> All right, what are the others? Alaska. Texas. Texas? Texas panhandle, That's right. There Bob. is a Texas panhandle. And West Virginia. That's right. West it's, Virginia does have that. that little okay. panhandle. All right. Well, those are good. That's six panhandles in, in the America. United States yeah. in the, the way the geography lays out. Well, that, that's good. I didn't, I never thought of that. Now it's time to go to the maps. Let's go to the maps. <laughs> oh, we can't show those on the podcast. I'm sorry. <laughs> let's bring down the big roll okay, map. Okay, let's see. Bring down the wall map, Bob. <laughs> Yeah, have those that sound uh, effect coming down. Those big wall maps they had. In that high school, would... they were hanging over the... Yes, right. They were, and usually... they'd bring them over the blackboard. I love those. They were oh. like on oil cloth. And they, That's right. I just loved it. The, the graphics on those were very rich, as I recall. Yes. And they were maps. very old. I think, they were uh, all old. <laughs> yeah, like from the 1920s you or know, something. Isn't that weird? I remember the books and everything seemed like they were very what? old, didn't they? Yeah, we but, weren't in high school in no, the No, no. Well, we were in grade school, and that's when I remember all the yellowed looking stuff that would yeah, come down yeah. and those little uh, the books they gave us had these all weird little illustrations <laughs> with hardly any color in them you yeah, know it was like an ancient time it was then they updated everything yeah and my weekly reader and all that stuff came out i love the weekly reader i love the weekly reader too but you know my big memory of my weekly reader no. was the sputnik issue issue yes about the russians launching this thing in space called sputnik which, of course, scared the bejesus out of everybody. <laughs> yeah, we all thought we were going to die. There was no way you could avoid it. It was brought right to your My Weekly Reader. Yeah. Here it is. It's yeah. beeping up there. Beep, beep, beep. What's it doing? And it's... who was the first cosmonaut in the air? Yuri Gargarin. See, we never forget that. Yeah. Isn't that amazing? Yes. We were so young when that happened, and we remember his name. It was a big deal. Yeah. Moving on. Toot, toot. Okay, name the first U.S. president to receive a Secret Service code name. He was called the general, but he wasn't. It wasn't Eisenhower, huh? No, he okay. wasn't. Was it before him? Just before him. Just before that would be Truman. Harry Truman, 1945. Yeah, his code name was the general, and that was the first president to get one. They all have code names by the Secret yeah. Service. Yeah. And then finally this. What U.S. presidents have visited the most nations? They were recent presidents in the recent past, in the last 30 years. Okay. I'll say Bush. One of the Bushes. The senior. Yeah, the senior Bush. He traveled a lot. Bill Clinton and George W. Bush were the most traveled presidents. They visited 74 countries each while president. Wow. That's a lot of travel. That's 74 countries. 74. Didn't know that. Not 100, though. (laughs) Did I mention this is our 100th podcast? I think you did. You want to give a little toot here? It's our 100th podcast, people. We're (laughs) so fortunate. We really do feel proud of that, that we persevered. That's, uh, you know, that's a lot. Okay. Here's a quote from Shirley Chisholm. She was the first African-American woman in the Congress in 1968, and she was also the first black woman to seek the nomination of president. She said, quote, if they don't give you a seat at the table, bring a folding chair. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good one. I love that. Be prepared. Yeah. You just find yourself to the table. Uh Get to the corner there. That's my kind of thinking. I like that. That's a great (laughs) quote. All right. Well, we hope you've enjoyed our half hour here, and we want you to come back next time when we bring you more fun trivia. I'm Bob Smith. I'm Marcia Smith. Thank you for listening to us today on our 100th episode (laughs) of Uh, The Off-Ramp. 
The Off-Ramp is produced in association with CPL Radio Online and the Cedarbrook Public Library, Cedarbrook, Wisconsin.